Hello, good evening, everybody. And uh, we did a little shuffle back there, so very, very glad to see all of you. I'm Moira Shuri, and I'm the executive director of Zocalo Public Square. Thank you, Marisol, for that wonderful introduction. Zocalo Public Square is a unit of Arizona State and uh, Arizona State University Media Enterprises. Thank you to everybody joining us here tonight at the La Brea Tarpits and Museum and all of you that have tuned in online. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at zocalopublicsquare.org on all major podcast platforms and on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So please subscribe to our newsletter to get our latest events. Tonight, we're asking the question, how can our communities escape polarizing conflict? It's an appropriate question for every one of us as we all face conflict in our personal lives and in our public lives. Our moderator is Erica D. Smith, columnist for the Los Angeles Times. And she writes about the diversity of people and places across California. When she joined the Times in 2018, she helped expand coverage of the state's housing and homelessness crisis, so you will hear about that tonight. She was previously at the Sacramento Bee, where she was also a columnist and an editorial board member covering housing, homelessness, and social justice issues. Erica has written for the Indianapolis Star and the Akron Beacon Journal. Over to you, Erica. Thank you. Thank you. Can everybody hear me okay in the back? Great. Okay. Well, it's so actually nice to be back in an in-person event. I don't know about how you guys feel about that, but um, thank you so much for coming. As uh, she mentioned, I'm Erica Smith, and I'm a columnist with the Los Angeles Times, and I'm going to introduce our, our great panel here uh, today. Uh, immediately to my left, we have Amanda Ripley, who is an author, investigative journalist, and hosted the podcast How To. Her latest book, which we're going to be discussing tonight, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, came out in 2021. Previous books include The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why, as well as The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. To her left, we have Young Park, who is an Associate Professor of Anthropology and Asian American Studies at UCLA. Her work focuses on inequality, culture in motion, and the migration of people. Her books include Cross the Pacific, The Lives of Korean Americans and Their Sociopolitical Engagement in the Golden a Global Age, and LA Rising, Korean Relations with Blacks and Latinos After Civil Unrest. And finally, we have Scott Silverman, who is a retired Los Angeles County Superior Court judge. Before that, he was a partner with Morrison and Forrester, where he handled employment labor, and labor matters. He now serves as a mediator and an arbor arbitrator at Signature and Solution, where he specializes in family law, employment, labor, and business and commercial disputes. So welcome our panel. Thank you. All right, we're going to get into it now. So, so Amanda, I want to talk, start with you. So in your book, you, you talk it's mostly about this idea that ordinary people get dragged into these conflicts where they're just fighting and it's an intractable fight. And you call that high conflict. Can you give us a definition of that and also talk about why you chose to use the La Brea tar pits bubbling behind, in front of us, I should say, uh, as a metaphor? 
Yeah, thanks, Erica. And thank you to Zocalo um, and the museum for doing this. This has been a long time in coming. I've been wanting to come here for a very long time, and the <laughs> pandemic got in the way. And I'm super excited because my brother and his wife, Anne, are here tonight. So uh, this is really a treat to be here with you all in person and talk about something that's very um, difficult and dear to my heart. Um, so one of the things I learned in researching how people get out of really, really ugly, dysfunctional conflict is that we are all susceptible to this kind of conflict. Um, this kind of conflict is not normal conflict. <laughs> normal conflict, we need. We need conflict, right, to get better as, as communities, as people. That is how we get challenged. That is how we challenge each other. And that I like to call good conflict in homage to what the late John Lewis used to call good trouble, right? That's where people ask questions. People get angry. Anger's okay in conflict, right? Anger's initiatory. Um, people can feel frustrated, sad, confused, a whole galaxy of emotions, but there's a sense of movement. Like you don't know where it ends. There's still flickers of curiosity. And then there's high conflict, which is the kind of conflict that takes on a life of its own, where you just experience the same one or two negative emotions over and over. And the phrase high conflict actually comes from high conflict divorces, um, which I'm sure the judge will have something to say about. But about a quarter of American divorces could be called high conflict, meaning they're stuck in perpetual cycles of negative, hostile emotions for years and years. Um, but it turns out there's high conflict politics, there are high conflict people, um, and whatever the case, it's the kind of thing that um, becomes an us versus them conflict. Everything gets very clear. The conflict becomes conflict for conflict's sake, and humans make a lot of mistakes in this kind of conflict. So we don't make progress. So that's why this is the best place ever to talk about this. So the La Brea Tar Pits is a place um, that is pretty much the perfect metaphor for high conflict, I think. Tell me what you all think. But I, I think it just doesn't get better as metaphors go. So this is a place, as many of you know, that in the last ice age we know uh, something like th there's three million bones in this pit, right? And so what happened, they think, scientists think, is that a bison or something large wandered in. It looks, you know, looking at it, you can forgive the bison for making this mistake. It looks like a lake, right? So they wander in and they get stuck immediately. It doesn't take much of that sludge. I don't know if you tried playing with the tar, the asphalt in the museum, but it's pretty intense. And then they start braying in distress and more creatures come, maybe a pack of dire wolves. And they're delighted because there's a bison just sitting there. So they attack the, the bison. Now they're stuck, right? Then they start braying in distress. And the more you flail about in high conflict and in the tar pits, the worse it gets for you. Any intuitive thing you do to get out of the tar pits and high conflict <laughs> will make things worse. You get where I'm going yeah, with this. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so I think it's a great example of how conflict like this draws us all in. It's very magnetic. And then once you're in, it's very hard to get out. Yeah. And okay. soon it gets crowded. Absolutely. So I want to talk to uh, the other two panelists to get their definition of high conflict. Um, you know, from your personal perspective, uh, from your professional perspective. I don't know, kind of, I mean, you've done a lot of work um, just talking with different groups of people in the midst of conflict. Do you do you think of you know what Amanda was saying about high conflict? Do you, do you see that uh, among people you've talked to in your research? 
I'm sorry, I, di I didn't have a chance to, to read the book. <laughs> 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 uh, I, I think definitely, you know, conflict uh, isn't necessarily bad, I would say that. <laughs> Sometimes uh, it, we, we need it, mm -hmm. and uh, I think instead really repressing it all the time. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think I uh, dealt with more difficult conflict, I would say that, social conflict, mm -hmm. such as 1992 Los Angeles civil unrest, mm -hmm. and Black Korean tension or Latino Korean relations. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, you know, uh, after 30 years later, now uh, have, we, have we been able to put an end to it? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately not, you know. But I think certain things, uh, it worked out better, mm -hmm. I would say that. I think, for instance, uh, uh, I think uh, race relations got better, mm -hmm. like, like, for instance, uh, Korean immigrant merchant, I think they do, mm -hmm. they do appreciate uh, in a way that the fact that uh, their regular customers felt sorry about what happened to them, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and then also uh, Korean immigrant merchant, like for instance, after the riot, uh, nobody told them what to do, but they hired everywhere African-American employees, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So sometimes even replacing their previously Latino employees. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think they uh, somehow they got the lesson in mm -hmm. saying that they would have to treat their customers better and also their Latino employees better. And what's important is it, it has been recognized by their customers and also employees yeah so so i would say that uh, that is why i say race relations got better but but i would say that that infrastructure of race relations didn't get better like if you go to south la uh you know the places like auto body shop which were destroyed during the 1992 Los Angeles civil unrest. Yeah. It has not been rebuilt, and still only palm trees are popping out, you know, so. Yeah, we're, so. Gonna, we're gonna talk more about the riots a little bit later, mm -hmm. too. I mean, obviously we're coming up on the 30th anniversary, so it's a, right. you know, it's a, a time of conflict for LA that I think we're gonna be talking a lot about. So th thank you for that. Scott, uh, did you, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but you know, <laughs> you're, you're giving me the side eye. But no, um, <laughs> but no, I mean, in the context of your, your work, you know, as a judge, but also in mediation, I mean, I'm sure you see plenty of people in conflict. And do you see that distinction that, that Amanda was talking about between high conflict and good conflict? Um, I do, indeed. And there are a lot of reasons for high conflict in divorce cases, her comment that it sucks people in and, and, and I would take it a step further and then distracts them mm -hmm. far from the ability to resolve it is a classic problem. I see a lot of divorce cases where the, the, the issues that led to the breakup of the relationship um, continue to drive the interaction between the parties. Although we have a no-fault divorce system in the United States, a lot of people are just simply unwilling to give up the pain and the hostility. I recently mediated a case in which the issues were entirely financial. They were settled to the satisfaction of both parties, but one of the parties couldn't end the dispute without a lengthy missive, a lengthy letter to all of us about how we shouldn't have been divorced in the first place. And it was a very passionate piece. And, and so I see a a lot of that. Mm -hmm. the, um, people who, who the unfaithfulness or the disappointment of the breakup, 
then then it sort of in, infects them yeah. um, and distracts them from resolving the issues of their kids or their money or their support uh -huh. or getting on with their lives. Yeah, and then in your book, I think you kind of referred to that as, as the crockpot, I think was the, yeah. the analogy you used about people fighting over something that's, you know, bigger the, the thing. But, you know, how do people get to the point, you know, otherwise, you know, sane people get to a point where they're fighting, you know, in a way that they would never think that they, that they would. I, I think you talk a little bit about this um, in your book. Yeah, I think there, I mean, I'm curious what, what you all think, but I think there are a few, I call them fire starters or trip wires that lead to high conflict. And so those are things that in all the high conflicts I've looked at all over the world, we're all present and to different degrees, right? So whether you're talking about um, politics or gang violence or even civil war, the, the things that tend to lead to high conflict are um, corruption or perceived corruption. So you feel like the institutions are not doing what they're supposed to do or they're really not doing what they're supposed to do. Um, but also humiliation. I think that's probably the most underappreciated force mm -hmm. driving high conflict. And it's tricky, right? Because something that might humiliate me might not humiliate you and vice versa. And humiliation can be manipulated um, by conflict entrepreneurs, which are the third tripwire of high conflict. So conflict entrepreneurs are people or platforms who exploit conflict for their own ends. And sometimes that's for power or profit, right? But just as often, I think it's for psychological reasons, um, for a, a need to um, get attention or feel like you belong or deal with unresolved trauma in your own life. So conflict entrepreneurs, humiliation, corruption. And the last one is the presence of um, false binaries. So the idea that we are sorted into groups and one is better than the other. And we know from decades and decades of research that as soon as you divide humans into groups with any, even arbitrarily, if I were to flip a coin and divide you all into two groups, within about 10 minutes, you start treating each other differently and discriminating against the other group. And that's just how we are wired. And it's a big problem in um, systems like ours that really, right now, reward conflict entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and um, kind of too neatly divide the world into good versus evil, black versus white, Democrat versus Republican. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do either of you have any thoughts on that as far as um, you know, how people get dragged into the, becoming um, just so you know, wrapped up in a conflict? go from normal to raging angry person? <laughs> <laughs> well, one could say that our justice system is inherently designed to, to promote it. Um, I mean, my comment about it is sort of the classic American comment that the justice system is not very good, but it's the best one there is, because mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the way we solve problems. I, I happen to strongly believe that the the growth of the profession that I'm now in of mediation is is one of the best developments in the justice system in the last 50 years the the notion that a valuable part of any legal dispute or a, a valuable step in any legal dispute is trying to settle it without ever mm -hmm. being in front of a judge but uh, but uh, yeah our our system contributes to it the the notion that my lawyer is going to beat up your lawyer, mm -hmm. um, um, uh, the examples that we unfortunately see on television mm -hmm. sometimes, like our recent Supreme Court hearings, yeah. um, contribute to the to this this sort of dramatic bifurcation dichotomy that mm -hmm. that uh, that we are experiencing right now in America. Mm -hmm. I think uh, maybe my. Uh, 
comments might not be the direct answer to your questions, but I would, I would say that back to, for instance, black orientation, uh -huh. uh, when tension has been developed to really and escalated, it, it wasn't, I mean, uh, based on my research in South LA, it wasn't uh, really developed to the players or actors were not just uh, African-Americans or Korean-Americans. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, in South LA, when the white judge Colin uh, delivered you know, sentence, no prison term to the Korean grocer mm -hmm. uh, who really uh, you know, happened to kill African-American teenager, uh, over shoplifting issues, mm -hmm. those things. So, so I think what I, what I'm saying here is that really, even black orientation, uh, it wasn't really dyed between what happened between Koreans and blacks. Mm -hmm. It was rather escalated because of the sentence and what African American uh, interviewees of mine they would call racialized the sentence. So, mm -hmm. so I think the white judge, you know, delivering uh, no prison term. Actually, it escalated, and I think for the people, it was interpreted as almost like honorary white sentence, not a black sentence, uh -huh. you know? Mm. And I see really, similarly, even media, even politicians, even DA's office, they exploit this kind of tension. Uh -huh. And uh, it, uh, for the escalates, it's beyond the control of the people, ordinary people. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so that's how I also interpret it in my, in my book, I would say that, yeah. 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 And the media mm -hmm. and criminal justice system, and also even politicians and government officials, you know, maybe uh, that's how they want to get more vote. Uh, so they cater to as if they truly care, cared about people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think they, they, they don't know it that what role they played. Actually, they contribute, contribute to escalate the tension, I would say that. Yeah. So that, I mean, that would be conflict in entrepreneurs, right, to an extent? Yeah, so it's people outside of the immediate parties, right, uh -huh. who are fanning the flames, of, often true in divorces as well, and in um, civil unrest. And, in, and it's, it's helpful to just recognize uh, two things I would say. Like, it's helpful to recognize who, is, who in your orbit is behaving like a conflict entrepreneur, yeah. who seems to delight in every twist and turn. Yeah, how do we identify those people? Yeah, yeah. Well, and Someone this, would say I this, would be that person. Well, that's what I was about to say. Or... I was going to say, <laughs> me too. So the second thing was try not to be one, right? Or be conscious of it when you are. So, so conflict entrepreneurs tend to use grandiose language. They talk about war when there is no war. Mm -hmm. um, they talk about, they frame everything as a humiliation or disrespect, even when it's not. Um, you can see this in Putin's speech before the invasion of Ukraine. The whole thing was about humiliation and us versus them, mm -hmm. uh, you know, NATO and the U.S. versus um, Russia. And so those are sort of classic framing devices that I think he also probably believes, mm -hmm. right? But that also helps galvanize uh, people to support high conflict even when the losses are great. Um, so, yeah, would I... I have become more conscious of it and not, I feel like there are plenty of conflict entrepreneurs right mm -hmm. now. Like it's not a niche that needs more, um, more recruits. So I try, <laughs> uh, but anyone could be, can, can do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, really quickly before I forget, because I've already neglected my duties, you are allowed to um, text questions to the number on your wristband or in the live chat and YouTube. And, that, and I am already getting the look, but I forgot to say that earlier. So please text questions so I can ask our great panelists questions. Um, but 
So, you know, to kind of piggyback on what you were saying about, you know, conflict entrepreneurs, it's, it's interesting. I was, I really did enjoy reading your book because I was, when I picked it up to read it the first time, I was in the midst of a Twitter battle mm -hmm. with a number of people over uh, homelessness policy here in Los Angeles. And, you know, it's interesting. I do think in thinking of the many issues that we're confronted here in the city, I think that probably homelessness is probably the one that is probably the most intractable and um, has gotten so far away from solving the problem that I'm not quite sure the sides that want to solve it actually agree on what the solution is anymore. Um, you know, and, and I wanted to get your thoughts just given both that you're from LA and DC has its own, you know, problems, problems as well, but kind of, do you see, you know, how do you see conflict playing out on that, on that particular issue? And do you see um, ways that we can kind of get out of it just from your experience in dealing with conflict on a, you know, one-on-one -on -one level? I don't know if, Judge, if you have any, Scott, if you have any thoughts on that particular issue. Just the broad, the, I mean, it's such a massive issue, but do you see parallels, I guess, um, on, on conflict and, uh, you know, whether it was what Amanda was saying about conflict entrepreneurs or just kind of we've gotten so far down the path that, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll confess I'm not an expert <laughs> yeah, in either the politics sure. nor have your expertise in the politics of homelessness. Um, but, I, but I have been discouraged by the approach of our political leaders mm -hmm. ac across the board that, that um, um, and, and, and I'll apologize up front, but I, I blame it a little on our systems of media these days. Um, that people are that there's so many opportunities for for getting sound bites mm -hmm. out there that there's not enough time to spend trying to be constructive mm -hmm. uh, about it and um, I, I must admit I'm a little disappointed with our current election campaigns because because mm -hmm. it, it doesn't sound like people trying to find solutions mm -hmm. it sounds more like people trying to to deliver sound bites, and that's troubled me about the, the mm -hmm. process. You may be closer to it and have a sense of whether there are real ideas that we actually should know about, but, um, and, and part of that is our fault too, mm -hmm. as, as citizens, forget my role as a judge. Mm -hmm. All of us as, as citizens don't study issues like homelessness uh -huh. closely enough to make the demands upon our public figures to explain it to us, to mm -hmm. read well enough. And so we suck up the sound bites mm -hmm. and and buy in sometimes to the to the conflict entrepreneurial approach mm -hmm. to it. I, I don't have a solution for that, yeah. to be honest, except that I like to see longer pieces in <laughs> newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, more public discussion mm -hmm. um, about important topics and other ways to get us to think about them rather than merely reacting to, to uh, campaign speeches. Yeah. I think um, I am maybe a little bit more optimistic here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's always good. I'm glad <laughs> uh, I, I think what I'm saying here is that uh, we do have a kind of uh, whatever man-made culture war, you know? Yeah. I mean, right now in the nation, easily it's polarized, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Even about education is issues, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like <laughs> critical race theory as boogeyman. I mean, I teach a class on race and racism, but we don't hardly talk about critical race theory. 
theory, but it, it has been condemned uh, whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But but I think uh, as far as the homeless uh, uh, issue is concerned, I see. A, I think we are making a little bit progress. I would say that in the past. Um, it, it was easily polarized or people easily blame on the victims mm -hmm. like homeless people but now increasingly <laughs> uh, maybe media played a more constructive role here uh, increasingly we realize it's actually a very complex issue mm -hmm. you know and uh, and I think home, homelessness uh, issue is also combined with broader financial and environmental you know mm -hmm. and even employment issues uh, or everything else and so so I think that's how I read you know increasingly people realize that it, it's not gonna be easy unless we really provide I mean this Homelessness is also related to mental health issues, mm -hmm. you know, employment issues or all other issues. Yep. So, I mean, it intersects with many other issues. So that kind of complexity, yep. complexities. Yep. So, so I think I, I hope that uh, in a way that we will be arriving at something in a, in a <laughs> way that we can all work that out. Yeah. I would say that. Can, can, can I actually ask you a question Absolutely. about what you just said this comment about a Twitter fight, uh, <laughs> which is an all too common yes. experience that I gather regular Twitter users have. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and, and so, as a, what's your reaction to it as a tool for communicating you know, given that problem and, and does it contribute to conflict? <laughs> and I'm sense? sure you'd have some thoughts on this as well <laughs> as a fellow journalist. I mean, it is really interesting and I was going to actually ask you guys about this too because, you know, whether social media kind of serves as this accelerant. I mean, I think, I definitely think that that is something that has particularly since 2016 been talked about quite a bit as social media has become a, broad, a bigger and bigger part of the way we communicate, I would say definitely during the pandemic where people weren't in offices and they weren't in events like this and, and talking to each other. Um, but I do think it, it serves to to elevate the loudest, most extremist voices. And I think you mentioned that in your book actually as well. Um, I think increasingly you have journalists who look at it as a tool, but not the tool maybe that it was five years ago because of, um, algorithms that surface sometimes the most hostile con you know content or the most um you know extreme content even despite who you follow like i mean i, I don't make it a habit of at least in my feed to following a lot of like really people on the far right or the far left um mainly because i get enough of that in my inbox but i mean <laughs> i think that you know, but nonetheless, I mean, if you look at the way that my my feed has been has been catered by the Twitter algorithm or you know whatever, it surfaces that stuff. I mean, there's ways to go around it and turn it off, but you know, I think it makes things difficult. I think it makes things difficult to communicate. And I and I and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Mana, but I think it it does you know accelerate high conflict in in, in this situation. And I think with the complex issue, as you were saying, Kayung, about homelessness, I think it just makes everything in these very simplistic terms, which there's nothing simple about solving homelessness. Yeah. Um, it's very complicated. And I mean, I did want to ask you, man, I mean, you talked about social media in, in your book, and you also talked about the idea of understanding complexity uh, and kind of getting to the root of high conflict. Is that, is it, do, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, it's hard to hand to talk about homelessness if you have 7,000 words, right? Yeah. I mean, you know that yeah, better than I absolutely. do. So 
it's it's absurd on its face and it's humiliation built in right because there's an audience um so i ha i do use twitter i have a little sign at my office wall to remind myself kind of like a warning on cigarettes and it says um eight out of ten americans do not use twitter <laughs> Yep. That's one good reminder. Another good reminder is 90% um, of the political tweets are tweeted by 10% of the users. So to your point that it's amplifying extremist voices. But the problem is journalists are human. So it is impossible to see those negative tweets and put that in perspective, um, to see those really you know, personal attacks mm -hmm. like that. So um, one thing I have changed personally, for whatever it's worth, is I don't engage. If someone seems genuinely like they want to argue about something mm -hmm. and they're not just enjoying trolling you, right? And I feel like you can usually tell. Um, the first thing I do is I take it off. I, I DM them so that there's not an audience. Mm -hmm. If you, are there any teachers here? Any, any former teachers or current teachers? So any good high school teacher will know if you get into any kind of power struggle with a teenager, you, the first thing you do is remove the audience, right? <laughs> because it changes the whole interaction. And so the cha same is true, I think, with social media. But I'm, I'm just dying to know what happened with the Twitter war. So can, I'm trying really hard not to ask you about It's going to get tweeted out and start again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we've relaunched it. Um, but no, I mean, and this is, you know, this was me definitely whoops, engaging in high conflict myself. But um, uh, yeah, we, this, so I, a couple, feels like a month ago, but a couple of weeks ago, I co-moderated our last mayoral debate, uh, which is broadcast on Fox 11. And, you know, one of the things that came out of that was that it was not interrupted, as a number of forums have been, by people who have been right. heckling. And, you know, most of a lot of folks who have been pushing for, you know, homeless policies and different things like that. And so that event, which was held at USC, was heavily screened um, and, you know, it was very tightly controlled, so we wouldn't have outbursts. And... Um, my co-moderator and I throughout the night talked about how, you know, it was kind of a shame, right? Because we have this massive election that's a very critical point for L.A. And we can't just, you know, throw open the doors and have people come and hear people talk, you know, without knowing that the candidates are going to get shouted down or whatever else. So I wrote this column um, basically saying that, but I, I threw the words idiots in the headline. Uh, so <laughs> for a couple reasons. Um, but nonetheless, it started that. <laughs> particular war, which was, again, I, I knew what I was doing. It was extra, you know, wasn't necessary. But, you know, I, as a journalist, I have to stand by what I did and what I wrote. And, I, you know, it is what it is. But it became a bigger thing with a number of, you know, activists in town who I don't entirely disagree with right, on their the thoughts. Irony, right? yeah. um, but my, my frustration comes from the fact that I feel like by the tactics they're using, they're actually making, they're not we're making the problem right. worse or escalating the conflict or making it into high conflict. Um, and I mean, I get the anger. I mean, I, I, especially if I was out, you know, talking or helping homeless people all the time, I would be mad on their behalf. I'm mad on their behalf as a journalist and I talk to people. I'm mad at lots of different things, but I guess I'm also in a different situation where I'm in the room and I hear the other sides of the comments of the politicians who are talking about this. And I know that these two things are not working and they're not helping. Um, and so I let the, my own frustration get the best of me with that. But nonetheless, it started a Twitter war, which will probably start again. Um, but <laughs> so that's that's how that you know came about. But I do think you know there's good ways to use social media and, and not so great ways to use social media. But I do think it probably does oftentimes add is become one of those conflict uh, entrepreneurs or accelerators. I think. 
Um, yeah, it's tricky, right? Um, you want to be open and accessible to yeah. your readers, yep. and so it's great for that. Um, I've met a lot of amazing people through Twitter. So, um, and I actually saw that I saw that column you did, and I saw that as a great success story. Not maybe not the idiots, but the <laughs> the event. Yeah. And I, I get what you're saying that it would be nice if you didn't have to screen everyone and like threaten them within an inch of their lives to not uh, yeah. heckle, but this is where we're at. Right? Like, it'd be nice if we didn't have metal detectors in high schools, you know? That would be, that's a world I want to live in. Mm -hmm. And this is where we're at. And so we have now degraded our norms so, so dangerously mm -hmm. that we have to rebuild them. So I think what, what you all did at that event was rebuilding norms of mm -hmm. how we talk about hard things. Yeah. And the more we can show people what that looks like, that's what most people want. Yeah. That is what, you know, your discouragement with the homelessness debate is about that. And I think most Americans feel that sadness and frustration. Yeah. Um, so I actually think it was a success, except for that one except word. Except for that one yeah. word. So, I mean, I do have a couple of uh, questions from the audience, and actually to, to you and also to you because you're a mediator. You know, what are the great tactics toward de-escalation? What are tactics that we can use, whether it's in this broader debate about homelessness or, you know, in other areas of just, of just high conflict, whether it's between individuals or, you know, massive societal problems? Yeah, I'm, again, I'm not an expert in either of those fields. It, it, well, well, when you do mediation, I mean, it's different than was, adversarial law, no, right? That's yes. what I was going yeah. to turn to. I mean, in, in my field, the biggest problem all, often is high conflict cuts off constructive communication. And so I view very much my job as a mediator is trying to figure out a way for people to communicate each other, with each other more effectively you know, at the beginning I commented about how people get distracted by issues that are real and meaningful, but that don't go to the heart right. of what the, the dispute is. One of my roles is to give people, as a mediator, is to give people an audience for those distractions, <laughs> for letting people talk to me and not immediately telling them that's an illegitimate thing to talk about. My goal is to get them to move off of that issue and now try to focus on 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 what's constructive. I, I, I don't know whether that carries yeah, over no, to the I public, mean, I but add. I think skills of communication mm -hmm. and, and facilitating conversations that are constructive and focused is is what we need. Stuff like this. Mm -hmm. So, so in, in every high-conflict divorce I've heard about, or even not high-conflict divorces, often couples will kind of go to war over a possession. You mentioned the crockpot. There's another story I heard from a California attorney about a couple that went to war over the Legos. Who's going to get the Legos? Dogs um, and cats. Are all dogs and cats, yes. Of um, real dispute. Huge, yeah. A lot of money gets spent on those. And, and so in this case, you could just argue about the Legos forever. But if you try to ask different questions and really listen to people, which I think is what you're saying, let them feel understood for once and heard, then you can find out, oh, the Legos are about, in this case, the, the couple felt that the affections of their only child would follow wherever those Legos went. Mm. And they hadn't even articulated that to themselves. Mm -hmm. But if you can articulate that- No, that's a very good- Right, then you don't example. end up losing all this time, money, blood, sweat, and tears to the Legos. And this is what I see happening a lot in high conflict, is we have the wrong fights with the wrong people, and we don't have the right fight that we really need to have, mm -hmm. you know? 
So uh, a lot of what I think is most effective in the people I followed who shifted out of high conflict into good conflict, whether they were you know, gang leaders or politicians or voters, uh, all kinds of people, the first thing they did was to distance themselves from conflict entrepreneurs, figure out who those people are. Sometimes you can't do that. Um, and then the second thing that they typically did in every case was to investigate the understory. Like, what is this conflict really about? And sometimes that requires a third party mediator to try to get to what do the Legos represent? Um, and there's a lot of ways that I think journalists can do that much more effectively than we all have been trained to do, mm -hmm. right? Asking different questions, listening to people, listening for cues and what they say, knowing when to go deeper with them. And um, to me, that is the most interesting part of our intractable conflicts is the understory. Mm -hmm. It's just good content and yeah. it's very rarely comes up, right? Like homelessness. What is the understory of homelessness, do you think? Like, what is it really about? Yeah, that's such a... <laughs> for some people, I for mean, some people, things, yeah. right? For different like, things for different people, yeah. absolutely. But I mean, I think for a lot of people, it is, you know, I mean, I think it's safety. I think it's, safety. you know, security. I think it's um, money, you know, wealth, uh, mm -hmm. feelings of, you know, inadequacy. And I think there's a, there's a, there runs the gamut, I think, in my reporting and, and talking to people. And you're right, it does take time to get people to get to what is their under lying yeah your story on that but yeah and yeah yeah okay did you have any thoughts i mean i know you've done research you know on another attractable issues of you know race relations and coming you know how was how did the de-escalation and how did you know that high conflict how was some of that addressed to get at some of the root issues after after the uprising yeah, actually, um, you know, when we had black orientation, mm -hmm. and I, I would say that right now it has been contained, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't say we we're able to put an end to it, but it has been contained. You don't hear much about black orientation. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we had it, actually both African-American and Korean-American community made the effort, all kind of effort. Mm -hmm. For instance, we had a dispute resolution center, you know, mm -hmm. and mediators mm -hmm. were hired mm -hmm. and mostly they tried to deal with dispute among the merchant and customers, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but uh, and even before the 1992 Los Angeles civil unrest, actually both African-American and Korean-American community leaders and activists they met and they tried to come up with a kind of code of conduct for the merchant, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it has not been implemented, right, because mm -hmm. we had a riot. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think really this kind of mediation effort was kind of limited. The reason is because it uh, never dealt with you know, without realizing that this was a very systematic question. Mm -hmm. The fact that how come African-Americans lacked business ownership mm -hmm. in their own neighborhood mm -hmm. and then everybody else came in Mm -hmm. You know, in the past, Jewish American merchant, and then now Korean American merchant, now even Latino merchant, mm -hmm. but except African Americans, mm -hmm. and there isn't anything that Korean immigrant merchant could resolve. You right. see, so so I I think it was kind of limited. I would say that, but uh, I I see it here that uh, you know when we had this kind of conflict and best maybe the best way we can in the long term we can suggest is 
for instance, um, Korean immigrant merchant lacked really understanding about African American history and you know um, and their struggles. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, I mean because you know Korea is supposed to be Koreans are supposed to be most homogeneous in mm -hmm. the world, although it, it was a myth. So Korean immigrant merchant who didn't know how to deal with really multiracial situation. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think knowing I mean, and literally my African American interviewees indicate interest. I'd like to know. I'd like to. Try Try Korean American Korean food, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I think there is a, some kind of hint, you know. Yeah. <laughs> all the food doesn't reserve everything, you know, all the conflict, but it is a way, you know, to be interested in. Yeah. And I would say that knowing the history uh, is the first step, but knowing uh, that's not sufficient. I would say that we we'll have to know. I mean, based on my research. Uh, what is the vision that African Americans have about the future of their communities? Mm -hmm. So when I think increasing number of Korean Americans can join, you know, like for instance, Black Lives Matter, you know. Yeah, that happened so, after yeah, George right, Floyd. Right. Yeah, that so, was such a big thing. And then they were welcome when they joined in uh -huh. downtown. So when uh, Korean Americans will be able to join anti-black, uh, anti-racist struggles, you yep. know, express their solidarity. Uh, uh, I think we are making progress, I would say this. So, yeah. yeah I have one follow-up question, actually, this one's from a reader. It's related to what you were just saying. But do you see any echoes of the uprisings in the current conflicts that have happened now, George Floyd or some of the other things that have happened? Have you? Yeah, absolutely. It was very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, it started with police violence, the killing of George Floyd, mm -hmm. right? And beating of Rodney King, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and we haven't still resolved this uh, police you know, violence. And also, even this time, uh, local business owners, you know, they were their businesses were looted and uh, damaged. Okay, mm -hmm. and maybe not burnt. I don't know it, but most business owners were again Korean American and Chinese American, uh, even <laughs> in Ferguson. You see, so again, and the media, even NPR, is talking about here is again Black Asian conflict. Mm -hmm. You see or black Korean conflict, and I couldn't, I mean, you know, I, I'm like losing my respect for NPR, you see? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, when we see, you know. I was about to get real. <laughs> I know, they yeah. say that's real. <laughs> I mean, things are a lot more complex, you yeah. see? Yeah. But, and yet media is always like so quickly yeah. refining. Here is again black Korean tension, black Asian tension, you know? Mm -hmm. And then they don't report. Korean Americans, Asian Americans joined, you know? Yeah. Uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, For protest sure. and everything else. So, uh, unfortunately, it was similar. You know, I wouldn't say it was the same thing. You That's know, similar. Uh, yeah, but and that was also same even in 1965 yeah. when we had the Watch Revolt. It was similar again, police violence. Police stopped, you know, motorists. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for whatever speeding. And then uh, at the time, Jewish American merchant, they mm -hmm. they were all, uh, you know. Uh, targeted and they left, they quit it, okay? Yeah. Because their children and grandchildren didn't want to take over those businesses. Yeah. So we are just repeating it mm. every so, 30 years. So, so I guess the question is how do we get out of that cycle? I mean, I think, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, in your book, you, you talk, you, you interviewed a number of people in large to small conflicts. I mean, 
What are some of the lessons you learned towards that getting out of that high conflict or de-escalation, or I don't know what phrase particularly you want to use uh, for that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is um, different ways of covering conflict are really important. And um, with some colleagues at the Solutions Journalism Network, we've trained like a thousand reporters around the country now to listen more deeply in interviews and try to get underneath like mediators do. Um, I'll never forget early on in this work, I interviewed a, a woman who used to be a reporter on Capitol Hill and had become a uh, mediator. And I asked her, I said, what would you do differently if you went back to covering politics on the Hill? And she said, I would go deeper into conflict. And it was shocking to me at the time because I was like, oh my God, people are always mad at us for too much conflict, you know? <laughs> yeah. And she said, no, we always just flit around the surface like a moth to a flame with conflict. We don't get to what it's really about. In my experience, most high conflict at some level is about a fear of not belonging. Mm. It's about a sense of being humiliated. Uh, and those are important conversations and, and arguments to have, right? So how do you get people talking about these things and your example is a great one where, you know, there were deeper underlying reasons why African-Americans were upset in that situation mm -hmm. that Korean-Americans could not solve mm -hmm. but could understand better, right? Which, which can be a big change, even though it doesn't fix mm -hmm. the problem. Um, Gary Friedman, who's the mediator I profiled in the book, he likes to say that um, success for a mediation for him is not whether the agreement gets signed or the, you know, everything is perfect. It's whether people leave understanding themselves, the problem, or the world a little better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true with good journalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's all we're trying to create. And so if you can create a space, whether it's vicariously through storytelling, um, and I think fiction storytelling is probably the most powerful way to do that actually. Mm, that's um, interesting. But create a way for people to understand themselves, their opponents, or the problem a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, then you can start to have the right fight with the right people. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you you talked about it in your mediation. You know, people are having, and I think you said this too, like conversations, but not the the wrong conversations with the wrong people. They're the wrong conversations about the wrong things. How do you get people in your mediation? to talk about the issue that's actually the most pertinent <laughs> issue, the thing that they're talking around? Uh, by being fairly direct at some point, uh -huh. um, again, as I said earlier, it's, it's, it's important to develop the rapport and to make people feel listened to. Mm -hmm. but, but the goal of that process is to say, I appreciate that. Now let's talk about what the fight is about. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about how does that relate to the custody of the children? Now let's talk about the issue of child or spousal support mm -hmm. or division of the property. I mean, that's my job, mm -hmm. it, which is to, to develop enough rapport, to give enough of an audience that I can then turn the conversation to the topic we need to work on. It, and it's not a one-time process. Yeah. I mean, a me, an eight-hour or a four-hour mediation usually is going back over and over again to to each side and giving giving the party a chance to express their point of view and then say okay now how are we going to take those feelings and constructively solve the problem so we can get on with your life mm -hmm. and 
Uh, this is a good trick. That's what trick. I try to do. This is a good trick for Twitter, too, by the way. So <laughs> I now... Yeah, I'm all ears. I now do, like, there's a technique in, that is called looping, which is, like, active listening where yeah. you distill with person. I do this on Twitter now. Yeah, explain looping, because I, I don't know if everybody understands <laughs> yeah, what that so is. <laughs> there's different kinds of active listening, but this particular kind was developed by Gary Friedman um, and his colleague. And basically, it's like, you're listening to the person. You're listening for what is most important to them, not to you. And then you try to distill it into the most elegant language you can muster. So you're, you're not repeating it back robotically, right? And this is important. So it actually takes a great amount of like, cognitive focus and intellectual energy, in my experience. And, and then you check to see if you got it right. And that's a, that's a step that I, it was easy for me to forget in the beginning. <laughs> but uh, you have to genuinely ask, like, is that right? And what I find in interviews, people are... It's a physical change that comes over them. Yep. They're so grateful someone has heard them. It's like, it changes everything they say after that. And the research on this is very strong, that if people feel heard, the next thing they say is much more revealing, to your point, and more nuanced and less extreme. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing people almost never get, yep. is to feel heard. So in Twitter, you know, I'll be like, you really feel like I totally missed the boat on this whole story and I talked to the wrong people. Is that right? Mm -hmm. It's amazing. People are like, oh my God, yes. And I'm so sorry that I was just such an asshole. And I'm really sorry. And let's, you know, and, and it just changes, you know, yeah, not every you know, time, but often. I mean, it's the classic active listening yeah. technique. It's feeding back to the person you're talking to. This is what I heard you say. Yeah. Now, I've got something else I want to talk about as well. But right, it's an order I, of operations. Yeah, like, but you know, I first heard you say this. Heard. Am I right about right. that? Am I getting what's concerning you? Yeah. And, and people do react. So well we, to that, or at least they then trust you more. So, so do people just not know how to do this anymore? Correct. Or do we like forget? Like, I, mean, I don't know if people ever were that great at it, right? But for sure, people do not know how to do it. I mean, I've, I didn't know how to do it. I mean, I've been interviewing people professionally mm -hmm. for 20 years, and it took about 10 minutes of training to know I, was, I had a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And I still work on it, you know, and I mm -hmm. do it in every interview, yeah. regardless of whether it's a conflict story um, and it, it is transformative. Do you teach your clients uh, to do basically active listening when you're in the process of mediation? Is that something they come away with, you think? I hope so, but uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's more my practice than my educational yeah. process. Okay. I mean, again, my goal is to inspire confidence, gain some rapport, and then, and then refocus people on the solution to their problem to their problems, mm -hmm. refocus both the party and the lawyer who's advocating right. for them, because yep, very often they're the entrepreneurs who right. are distracting people from a solution. Kayang, do you, do you have any, just from your research and just talking to people, do you, since, you know, what you wrote about and what you were studying is such a, you know, big problem, in using some of these skills that we've been talking about, do you have suggestions that you would make to other people that are looking to kind of solves or get involved in a good way maybe with homelessness and you know trying to like use some of these active listening skills or you know race relations or whatever i mean are there things that we can do as citizens better <laughs> does, does that make sense yeah again uh, maybe my answer might be indirect i would say That's that <laughs> uh, i mean uh, as an anthropologist i always uh, try to listen to what people will say because we view everybody as a philosopher uh -huh. you know so when I went to South Central 
I really wanted to hear particularly from African Americans what they say, how they interpret, you know. But but I think you know uh, I, I would have to say really uh, I, I'm I'm sorry because I'm <laughs> you know no, again criticizing media here. Media is only interested in tension and conflict. Not like when we had like uh, coalition building mm -hmm. or alliances, media never, almost never reports it, you mm -hmm. see. Maybe it doesn't sell, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. You would have to say that here is a conflict, here is a tension, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I would say that because uh, in my case, I often uh, arrived after uh, journalists left, you know, in South <laughs> LA. So, I mean, you know, people are saying very cynical. They say they did everything to try to help journalists. And then later when they saw what is printed, right. they realized it is out of context, and, you know. But, but I think, for instance, uh, New York Times reported like, oh, African-Americans, they feel betrayed because they shed their blood. They went to Korea, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, U.S. Army just st uh, stationed in Korea. And, and then now they, when they saw Korean immigrant merchant, they see occupying army, you know. They come, they are same minorities and initially they welcomed uh, Korean immigrant merchant, but then they realized they wait a minute this is the same way that they were treated by white American merchant you know mm -hmm. so they are disappointed but New York Times in the early 90s when I first uh, really started my research um, they were saying that that's how they wrote an article saying that African-Americans feel betrayed because they shed blood on mm -hmm. behalf of Koreans, but now this is the way how they return, you know. The Koreans became occupying army, they dominated all the businesses, okay. But then when I went to South Central, it was the opposite. Mm -hmm. I was approached by African-American men who approached me and I went there with my Asian-American female research assistant and these men, they are asking me how they could help us, you mm -hmm. see, what, what, what can we do, you yeah. see. So it's, it, it wasn't like what the New York Times reported, you see. So I was really pleasant, pleasantly surprised, you know. Yeah. I mean, so, so I think uh, I, I say we have to figure out why media is only interested in Conflict and tension. I mean, that's a longer know. conversation. <laughs> I mean, particularly ethnic tension. Maybe this is better to deflect our attention from whatever you know, condemning white supremacy or whatever you see. Well, I think. That, I mean, I think your point about you know that there's definitely an education to be to be had for the public. Is there? You know, and these are the last couple of questions that are coming up on seven o'clock. But um, Amanda, you know. As far as educating people, you know, and it's, I'm assuming it's got to be in the right language, the right tone, the right time. Is there ways, not just journalists, but just people can, you know, engage in kind of that education and to come together to kind of de-escalate this high conflict? Yeah, I mean, I think understanding conflict is a really powerful thing. Like it has been for me to understand that this thing we keep arguing about is probably not the real thing. Mm -hmm. And you, it creates a lot of curiosity um, it makes things interesting that had become really tired and just kind of soul crushing. So I think, you know, I've seen it happen now. I mean, I followed in the book a group of um, very progressive Jewish New Yorkers who spent three days in the homes of very conservative uh, corrections officers in Michigan. And then they did a swap uh, and the Michigan folks came to New York. 
And you actually can see it happen. It takes maybe a couple hours of people having real conversations uh, with each other where they continue to disagree profoundly, but they, they, they actually start to almost enjoy mm -hmm. the discovery process. Mm -hmm. So I think learning how to listen is incredibly valuable and should be like taught in school. <laughs> um, and then other things follow flow from that, you know, because you start to understand that um, we are really bad at communicating as humans, you know, <laughs> like there's a great quote, the biggest mistake in communication is thinking it happened. Um, so and journalists are just as bad. So we really overestimate most journalists who write these stories don't intend to inflame the conflict or oversimplify the conflict. I mean, some do probably, but like on average. And so trying to help them understand the effect this is having mm -hmm. on their communities. Um, I don't know about you. I know a lot of journalists who want to do this differently, yeah. who are really also very frustrated and discouraged. Absolutely. Well, last question to all of you, and it's going to be slightly different for each, but I want to start with you, Scott, and kind of go around this way. I guess kind of to paraphrase a quote out of your book from Gary, from Gary, you know, what would your perfect LA look like without high conflict? Like if you could snap your fingers and like there'd be no high conflict in, in, in LA, what would it look like? Well, I, can I sort of rephrase the question? Sure. <laughs> I, I, don't think it's, I don't think that's possible. Okay. What I do think is possible is that institutions and practices can be can proliferate and can be developed that reduce the amount of high conflict, that intervene early. I mean, some of my critical comments notwithstanding, I'm very proud of the fact that the Family Law Bar in Los Angeles has consciously engaged in a variety of mediation programs. There's a whole bunch of them, for example, that give away three hours or four hours of their time on a regular basis every day to help solve divorce cases for self for people who don't have lawyers yes. and and that kind of approach on a broader scale i mean this is within a certain branch of the law but i think if we spread institutions the, the lada for a while had a community mediation program where people with with community disputes your neighbor whose tree hangs over your yard and you can't solve it could go and get somebody to do that i think that's I, I think the truth is we'll never completely wipe out high conflict, but we can institutionalize to a greater degree and proliferate processes and procedures and organizations for yeah. helping people get past it. And, yeah. I, and I think. No, that's great. Okay, okay, two minutes to both of you. Go, same question to you. What would your perfect LA look like without high conflict? Well, I think it's unrealistic to think of okay. LA without conflict. Uh -huh. I think it's healthy to have a conflict. We have to understand what what is leading to all the conflict and what we're trying to do. I would say that. Mm -hmm. So, I I, I I would say that really, I can't imagine any human society <laughs> without any conflict. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, so I think we have to. Uh, but but I think you know what we're gonna to do. It vary, okay. And then people need need to hear what other people are doing about like for instance even Korean immigrant merchant when I was conducting research they were curious to know mm -hmm. what other merchants are doing with the shoplifting those things mm -hmm. and then when I told the story well one merchant instead of punishing them 
uh, instead uh, try to give like candies, you know. I mean, kids would like to have candies, but they don't have money. So this merchant thought that, okay, uh, I'm going to reward, you know, mm -hmm. uh, kids if they bring the good score, if they did well, then they are going to reward. And then uh, at one point, 200 kids lined up, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so instead of watching and, you know, punishing and following them through, understand why there's a shoplifting. People don't have money, mm -hmm. but, you know, kids would like to have sweet things, right? <laughs> so, so other merchants said, that's great, you know, they would like to know. So I mentioned this. So I think it's very helpful yeah. to know what people are doing about, you know, yeah. when they have a conflicts. Perfect yeah. sense. And last question to you, Amanda. What's one high conflict, and I'm talking that probably affects the country, a big problem that you think we should tackle or could be solved? I mean, I think we can make progress on all of them. Um, what about nobody's answer? Probably. Okay, I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer it. Uh, uh, going to be <laughs> You're right. You're right. We're really giving you a hard time. Um, so uh, probably the quintessential high conflict of our time is climate, right? Where people, most people agree that we all share the air we breathe and we share the future. And most people want to preserve those things. And I think actually the biggest obstacle right now is a sense of despair mm -hmm. and a lack of agency. So to me, when you ask, you know, what would, what would LA look like without high conflict? I don't know. I know what journalism would look like. Journalism, you know, Shamil Idris, who runs um, Search for Common Ground, they work in conflict zones all over the world. He says there's, everywhere he goes, there's three things people want. It's the same three things. Security, dignity, and hope. So if you ran journalism that way, where the beats were literally yeah. about security, dignity, and hope, you're serving people in a different way, right? Yeah. So the conventions are different. The understanding of, I mean, every great story needs conflict. We've all been told that over and over again. But conflict has been defined so narrowly. Yeah. Conflict can be a complication. It can be internal conflict. I mean, if you look at streaming TV series right now, the complexity in those characters is about a thousand times greater than the complexity in the characters we write about in the news. Oh yeah, for sure. That's weird. Yeah. Okay, so I think in a better world, good conflict journalism would look like streaming TV. That's what I think. That's my answer. That's I finally good, got to it. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Well, thank you. I want to thank all three of you for your time and for your excellent insight into this issue that I think we all care about. Yeah, please give a round of applause. Thank you. All right, here's the part uh, I and read. And our thanks to you for stimulating Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, please visit Zocalo's website for a summary of our talk, interviews with the guests, and more conversations and subscribe to the podcast. Please, everyone, please stay for our reception <laughs> to meet each other and actually have conversation. We have refreshments from Oaxa, California, and you can also pick up a copy of Amanda's book at Reparations Club. Thanks again. Uh, thanks for coming. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. It was fun.